Hello there and welcome to episode 67 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. I am Ken Eakins, one of your hosts. Joining me in the other host seat once again is Mr. Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? Excellent. Thank you very much. Excellent. Excellent. I, I hear you went on a, a brief vacation recently. <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> I certainly did. I mean, that, 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 that is far too mysterious for me to possibly mention. <laughs> Involved ancient stones, rituals, n- naked rituals no. uh, <laughs> in the elements. Um... Not on the Isle of Wight, it didn't. <laughs> there's, there's some, uh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, about 10% of that, that account is accurate. <laughs> Um, he burnt a wicker man, a wicker effigy, and oh god! It was... I did go to braiding, where, where, according to the Roman Roman um, chroniclers, uh, the uh, the wicker man sacrifice was actually performed. Oh, there you go, there you go. Um, uh, it's that time of the show where I have to say, do not forget to add us on Instagram. We're basically sitting now, one word on everything, um, including Instagram and YouTube, etc. Facebook, you can find us full name right where you're sitting now. Do come and join us. Um, anyway, who are we talking about today, and who are we talking to? Uh, the uh, the individual, I suppose, is a uh, well. Actually, the the work, the work and life of Manly Peter Hall, who's uh, is a name known to many people. Had a huge influence through his Secret Teachings of All Ages book, um, and the illustrations in that, which have got a sort of life of their own, it seems to me. And uh, so yes, we and the the lady who's going to it was a living link to that is uh, is uh, written this uh, book that you've got there, Ken. Yes, uh, the book is called "Making the Ordinary Extraordinary: My Seven Years in Occult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall," and it's by the lovely Tamara Lucid. Um, and Tamara wasn't that keen on doing a brief biography so i shall read her biography for you um it says tamra lucid is a founding member of the experimental rock band lucid nation she was a writer and editor for newtopia magazine and the principal interviewer for the original reality sandwich which is a really good website she has produced documentary films including exile nation the plastic people end of the line the women of standing rock and the award-winning viva cuba Libra rap is war she lives in LA with her husband, Ronnie Pontiac, and we talk about him as well a lot in this interview. Um, anyway, let's roll over to the interview now with Tamara, and we'll see you on the other side. Hello, Tamara Lucid. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, it's great to have you on, and you've just written a really interesting and great book that we've just been chatting about. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So, give us a little bit of a kind of background of your. What I think some people are going to know you as a musician, aren't they, rather than a author? Mm-hmm. Um, so, can yes. you talk talk to a little bit about your kind of musical background and kind of? I think because in a way, it kind of feeds into the book, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, when I left PRS, um, we kind of kicked around. Also, um, when we left, Mr. Hall had suggested, go back where you came from, kids. Um, and where we came from was music. So we went back there with all our metaphysical sensibilities. And um, in a completely, it was foreign to us. So our home had become very foreign. And um, 
we weren't sure how to how to do it really. Um, and our experiment was an experiment of two people, a couple, experimenting with the metaphysical teachings we had learned in the world of music. And the first thing we figured out is um, the musicians that were available at the time weren't the best quality people and were not on the same page. And we, Ronnie did not want to do this kind of activity. He wanted it to be a more, a partnership. So I, I suggested that if any of these guys can play guitar, I, I could learn to play guitar. And so we learned to play guitar together. And of course, I never intended to sing because I, I was still desperately shy. And um, speaking up had been a problem for me my whole life. And then at the end of PRS was why we left. And um, but this basically evolved into Lucid Nation, our band. And I ended up being the primary singer in the band. Um, not always, but the primary. Um, and it ended up being a career that lasted about 20 years and made many albums, many CDs, and uh, played many shows and had many extraordinary experiences in that field. And then in the book, you I mean, we should probably clarify, Ronnie is your uh, partner of quite a long time now. Yes. Yeah, and uh, but when you in the book you describe when you met him, he was um, kind of into <laughs> some quite dark <laughs> kind of uh, music. I guess evil anime character. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit because it's an interesting the way you you kind of bumped into each other, and in fact, let's let's talk a little bit because uh, one thing I'm really interested in um, with LA culture is there's. Uh, in the t I've been there a few times recently, and I'm always told when I go there, oh, LA is completely different to what it used to be like. It's totally different. Yeah. So could you describe, because especially when, you know, growing up, LA always looked like this super dangerous place and, uh, you know, um, but, but also kind of a really vibrant artistic place. So I don't know if that's accurate, I don't know, but could you maybe talk to kind of around the period where you met Ronnie, kind of what was what was going on in LA and kind of, you know, kind of set the scene as it were? Well, let's see. Well, the time when when we started the band, that was the heyday of hair metal. So Sunset Boulevard, the Rainbow Bar and Grill, um, the Roxy and the Whiskey, just not, it was a wash with puffy hair and stuff like that and uh, the tightest costumes you could possibly <laughs> glue on or peel off. And um, so there was a lot of that. Um, now, prior to that, when we, growing up and also just at the time that we started at PRS, LA is such a strange, it was a strange combination of things because it could be quite rural in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. Um, it was almost like a frontier town. Um, West Hollywood was very much like a frontier town, a, a little island unto itself. Um, 
we weren't yet incorporated or we, yeah, we were unincorporated little alcove. And um, so the possibility that was always there from the beginning when the movie business started of reinventing yourself, of being someone from somewhere else and creating a, an image, a, a new person, becoming a new person was very available to anyone. Um, to, you know, just, I mean, Axl Rose did it in, in Welcome to the Jungle. You see him coming off the bus with a piece of straw in his mouth. Mm. And um, it was like that. Now, the funny thing is, you know, 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden it was silent. It's like all this excitement going on. And then all of a sudden, I guess everyone went home to watch the news. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it would be like that. Um, you could still, you know, in the beginning, like I said, in the beginning, when we were at PRS, um, you could still find places in the valleys, for instance, where people had their chickens and goats and things like that in their backyard. And, and that was okay. And it was right next to, you know, people who went over the hill. That's what they called it. You know, you go on Laurel Canyon and you go over the hill and you go into Hollywood. And um, because Hollywood was where the nightlife was and it had been, you know, for decades, that was Hollywood. All the stars go there and they only come out at night. <laughs> and um, otherwise they're, they're shopping and getting all their beauty supplies and clothes. Um, so I think the, the, the most unique thing, the two most unique things was there was still the ability to reinvent oneself, be a completely different human being that you, than you started with. And of course, this strange combination of super glam, cutting edge, and rural. Yeah, it's kind of strange, isn't it? So what was the, um, I mean, you know, obviously, when I think of especially occult history, LA pops up quite a lot, um, obviously with the OTO and uh, you know, people like Jack Parsons were very active in that area, uh, in mm -hmm. California especially. Um, but what was kind of, because what was it from your perspective? Did you ever, did you see a big occult activity there at the time or was it kind of uh, very underground or? It was... Um... I mean, there were always uh, palm readers and tarot readers and little storefronts, you know, here and there scattered, always a peppering of things like that. Um, I was never particularly um, involved in anything like that. Um, I found astrology fascinating, um, but I, I was also more of a, a, a history, um, you know, uh, I, I love mythology, um, things like that. I, I liked studying nature. Anything like that was, was utterly fascinating. There's another unique thing about L.A. Is, is the way you could go from, you know, the middle of the city or the valley and, you know, pop on a freeway and you were in country. You were, you were at the ocean and it was, it was beautiful. 
and very underdeveloped. Um, you could drive an hour and be in beautiful mountains, totally underdeveloped. Um, now that has all dramatically changed. Yeah, I was going to say I went to Venice Beach when I was in LA last couple of times, and it, <laughs> anything but underdeveloped. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Now I, my brother lived in Venice with his lover, and um, that it used to be. Um, you could sit on the canals at night, and you know, just talk, and you know, maybe smoke a little or something like that, and it was completely safe. Um, it was completely relaxed. Um, this was back when, uh, Santa Monica was called the people's Republic of Santa Monica. All right. Um, it was Jane Fonda was living there with, uh, Tom Hayden and, you know, they must be commies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, but it was a very much more relaxed. It almost seemed like, um, celebrities then were more inclined to be hey i'm just you know a regular person and i live in the area that i like i like santa monica or i like west hollywood or i i like i like the valley and they were more inclined to be um but i'm still a householder i'm still i'm still a regular person with a regular life whereas now it's 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 very important to sustain that very glamorous, that very, um, you almost want to call it elite kind of, of, of presence now. Yeah. It certainly um, felt like that when I was there. I mean, I remember we did, uh, we thought it'd be funny. So we went on one of the, um, the tour buses. Oh, the tours. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I, I really strongly remember we drove up one section where Johnny Depp lived. And he owned like the entire section pretty much, except for one house, apparently. Like there's yeah. like a whole kind of, it almost felt like a small village of houses. And yeah, it was crazy. It's like, you know. Um, yeah. And that sort of sense of kudos. Uh, I mean, you mentioned there, forgive my ignorance, but uh, like those venues that you were you were familiar with. I mean, the whiskey, the whiskey a go go, is that, is that my mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 So that's, I mean, that's real kudos there. I mean, there's real characters involved with all that uh, yeah that oh world. my goodness that 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 those locations and that world well i mean the villanova that's that's what the rainbow was originally called and um they named it the rainbow for judy garland after her death um wasn't she proposed to there yes that's right yes yeah. Manelli proposed to her mm. um but i i mean Going there is not, not I'm I'm not a a, a a club person per se. So, but hey, <laughs> I just remember it's not th- fun. Think, I remember thinking I really loved LA. Actually, I mean, I really like it there. Um, I think it helps that I know people there, especially because I got taken to definitely the, yeah, got taken to the better places and all that kind of stuff. But I, I remember being really disappointed by Sunset Boulevard. I, was, I remember thinking, oh God, really? <laughs> this, this, yeah, that, that's it. Yeah. You know, it's very tiny, huh? It's tiny. And it's like, it always seems to gleam in the in the movies, doesn't it? When you actually go there, it's quite run down. And <laughs> That's the beauty of cinematography yeah. with a nice filter on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you definitely have to gild the lily a bit. Um, <laughs> because... That lily's faded. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah no it's uh but yeah no i'm a i'm i am a fan of of the area generally because i just yeah it, i mean i always remember listening to Dave, david lynch is my favorite director and i always remember listening to him talking about the place and I went, and then mm-hmm. I'd have friends come back and they'd go, oh, LA's rubbish. And I was like, oh, God, really? That's that's disappointing. But luckily, <laughs> like I said, when I went there, I knew people there. So it was kind of, I had the... Well, there, it's know. a typical city, isn't it? There is a lot of rubbish, but there is a lot of things that are beautiful about it. That's the paradox, you know. Um, it, it's it's everything. And, it's and the, it definitely seems like a good home for um, for... Uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Hall as well. <laughs> uh, it, it was. It served him very nicely. Yeah. So uh, well, Los Feliz is a lot more stately and quiet, though. Mm. It is a suburb, and um, it, it's it's got this. It still kind of has that that kind of dreamy quality. Mm. Um, I, I said in the book, it's like you look at those houses and and you just think. There had to be directors and all kinds of starlets and and intriguing mystical types having seances and mm. these beautiful Moroccan lamps glowing and you know you just can imagine that and I think that's part of the the allure of L.A. is not only the the ability um, that it provided to reimagine oneself but the imagination that just the architecture brings to mind. It, it it sparks the imagination. It makes the creative mind more active. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So I think let's talk about because obviously Ronnie plays quite a large part in your book. So let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit because I've, I've really liked the story about how you guys met. So could you uh, could you go into that for us? Well, it was um, a rainy April 1st. <laughs> all good stories start exactly so um so it's april fool's day and i i was i was at the club dragged there by a friend ish friend and um she had gotten us into a situation that was um she liked the situation i however did not and it looked very dangerous to me and i i couldn't get out of the situation i i was really not unreasonably scared so I saw Ronnie standing in the parking lot and he was wearing all black and he was smoking a black cigarette and um, it was raining and he was gazing upon the crowd with a lot of disdain. And so I started to walk up. Mario, the, the um, proprietor of the Rainbow, uh, saw me looking at Ronnie and he was like, Hey, 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 you stay away from that guy. It's bad news. And I, was, I, I, I didn't understand that. Um, I just, I was like, Ronnie, that guy right over there with the black cigarette, that guy I can trust. So I proceeded to walk up to Ronnie and, and say, I'm in trouble. I need help. And will you help me? And he really looked perplexed. Um, I think he was quite shocked that somebody had said that to him. And he was like, all right. And I explained the situation and he's like, okay, let me go get my drummer. And uh, yeah, we'll go with you. So he and his drummer um, went with me 
and made very sure that nothing bad happened, which it proceeded to, thanks to my friend. <laughs> and um, w- once that, that happened, um, within about two weeks, I had moved into his apartment, a little single apartment, right off Sunset Strip, yes. <laughs> and like any good musician. And um, yeah, we, we started, um, started our partnership there. And so how did you, because you came across uh, a copy of um, Mr. Hall's book, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to recall the name, Secret Teaching of All Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently uh, it was an, a, a fairly pricey tome at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what, what do you think, because it was Ronnie that was originally drawn to it, wasn't it? What do you think drew him to the book in particular? And like, what kind of effect did it have on the pair of you? Well, I think he was always attracted by, by that stuff, the occult, the mystical, the spiritual. Um, and he was, he was very well versed in history, which just kept me amused still does. Um, so he found the book and we had to put it on layaway because it was very expensive. I think it was $50. And um, so when we, when we finally got to bring it home, we started to read it and it was just, it was, it was boggling, really mind boggling because of all the information, it truly is an encyclopedia of all things mystical, occult, spiritual, and historical, the history of the occult, history of the spiritual. And it was just, we'd take a chapter a day and just go through it. And it was wonderful, just opening up your mind, opening up your, your imagination, um, and also rather affirming as far as uh, spiritual inclinations were concerned. So that was just a, a marvelous experience. And then, of course, we, we started discussing it with a friend of ours who was also kind of mystically inclined. And she, she mentioned that Mr. Hall actually was still alive because I thought he was dead. That's the first thing out of my mouth was well, this guy's great. How long has he been dead? <laughs> and you know, it's, it's an old book. It's got to be an old writer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, so Ronnie was like, oh, it must have been a while. This is a sixth edition, you know. So he's probably been long gone for a long time. Well, of course, our friend, no, 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 no. He's, he's actually down in Las Feliz. He lectures every Sunday. You should go and check him out. He's wonderful. Me and my girlfriends were always trying to date him, <laughs> which <laughs> I was going to—I was going to say yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it is the definitive text, isn't it? Uh, many people's, um, but that's the book you associate with him more than anything. That's the oh yeah, yeah. And um, and it was like as you say, it was uh, originally published in 1928, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. another thing is, watch is so um, when I think of the book. I think immediately of the, uh, the the lavish illustrations. You could fall into yes. them. They are so seductive. They are so um, you know they they got Evocative. such a vibrant exactly. They got wonderful vibrancy to them, and they have a real iconic 
sort of quality to them. They've 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 almost like taken a life on the, the, their own, haven't they? Because they've been so reproduced and so on. And they and they draw you in, they seduce you, and then they, and they're, it's a wonderful um, way of uh, gaining access to that kind of that perspective of life. Also, just simply as a work of art. Absolutely. You know, it's it's, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> you know, there are those who myself being one who will look at a book and go, this is the most beautiful creature. Look at it. Oh, the guilt, the this, the that, the pictures. Ah, you know, um, it's just, and it's just wonderful. And they're intriguing um, painting. They're intriguing images and they, and they, you know, they want you, to, they make you want to say, well, what, what is this all about? What exactly? What mm -hmm. is the, what isn't that? You know, it's an absolute cliche that, you know, uh, a picture paints a thousand words or whatever but i mean but it's a cliche for a reason a very good reason and it and it makes you think what is this about and and um and dig deeper into the text well it yeah it invokes that that curiosity um all the good stuff that that makes your mind better um it, it's healthy for you to contemplate and consider and analyze using all those faculties just with a picture, with an image. And that is why it's, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. It does do that. It does create the, these, these, it can create a profound interpretation that could possibly change your life yeah. if done right. And it would be unthinkable, unthinkable that if you think about the the uh, secret teachings of all ages, it would be unthinkable trying to publish that without those paintings and without those, you know, those specific paintings. It would mm -hmm. be that would be mm -hmm. totally impossible. Have you ever seen any other? I think the uh, the artist who did them was somebody called John Augustus Knapp, and I'm not familiar with his work at all. Apart from that, I mean, in a way, he must be one of the most famous paintings in his field because that they are like i say you open up uh many books on on the cults or esoteric or metic subjects and they they're reproduced you know all over the place aren't they you found them you know so um uh, i don't i'm nodding in agreement i'm sorry <laughs> this is audio i'm nodding in agreement yeah. no absolutely uh fascinating so I, um, I guess we should probably jump in here and because we we're, we're saying terms like prs and mr hall and stuff so who exactly is manly palmer hall um could you give us like a kind of a breakdown of of, of you know a history i guess of of who he is because like i said to you earlier on before the interview um i'm i i you know throw my hands up that i'm fairly ignorant to his his work i've, I've listened to a, a few of his lectures on youtube and actually found them to be very interesting um but <laughs> He's one of those. He's one of those characters I've heard a lot about, but you know his name comes up a lot. He's a he's a definitely a a character in that world. You know, a very you know uh, an important one, but one that I've you know that just hasn't come across my uh, radar yet properly. So I'd be really interested and intrigued to uh, get a kind of history of the man and you know um, from you. Well, <laughs> well, he was a. Um... He was raised by his grandmother and um, Canadian. Um, he was a very voracious reader and he found these subjects, cultism, in, in, to use a generalized term, 
the most fascinating, whether it was Madame Blavatsky or St. Germain, all these, these, these characters, these concepts fascinated him. And his, his grandmother encouraged this. Um, now, he was, he was working as a clerk on Wall Street, and um, grandmother passed away. And when she did, I, I'm, I'm thinking he probably assessed his life and what he wanted to do with it at that point. 27 years old or so. No, he was younger than that, actually. Um, so he decided, much like what I was referencing about L.A., to come to Los Angeles and invent himself and start his let's call it career in philosophy. Um, I would call him a natural born philosopher and um, no easy task uh, in the 20th century. Um, he, because of his charisma, he was incredibly good looking, incredibly intelligent. I, I believe this is a case of a photographic memory. And I saw many examples of that working for him, that he just, it, it was amazing. So um, he got to LA, he um, got patrons, and two of which were a, a couple of oil heiresses um, that managed to, to um, bequeath to him steady living throughout almost his entire life um they were they were just i think they also um i mentioned in there they entertained uh raymond chandler and um tried to encourage him in his in his writing uh so as mr hall progressed he started um lecturing and giving talks and and started counseling people and discussing mysticism and philosophy and Eastern traditions. And um, basically everybody loved him. He was just, he was a great guy. And so he decided, you know, I should make a school, a, a philosophical school. And that's what PRS is. It's, you know, it's also PRS Philosophical Research Society. It's also philosophy, religion, and science. Um, and he, they built an auditorium and a gift store and a library, of course. Now, these patrons would, he would go out and collect books. Um, oftentimes, uh, say, like after a war, um, those beautiful metaphysical books, those, those beautiful alchemical manuscripts, things like that, People weren't interested in that anymore. They, they, were, they were bought on the cheap, as it were. Um, and, you know, so he managed to amass a library that even now, um, it has been quite diminished. It is still a massive library filled with fantastic books. Probably worth some money as well. I mean, you know, especially a cold, oh, old occult fortune. Text. Yeah, yeah. They're no, just... his, his, his alchemical manuscripts and some of the, the first editions that he had, he had a vault in um, his secretary's office 
and the vault. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> it, that, that's where a lot the, the Getty museum has a lot of the, um, uh, things that were in that vault. Um, Marie had to sell a lot of things. Um, his wife, Marie, mm-hmm. and um, at the end of her life. And so, oh, it's, it's just, it's overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Most people who, um, I know I had this experience when I walked through the doors of that library the first time, you you just, you're, you're, God smacked. You're you're just dumbstruck at this collection, hmm. and and that's what he did. So he he collected the books. He also collected art, and had a beautiful collection of art. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. that yeah. that's kind of how he started. Um, basically, just reinventing himself in L.A. Um, he he dabbled with um. Uh, Hollywood and things like that. He was longtime friends with Bella Lugosi, of all people. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, stepping back a bit to the art, he clearly, I mean, I, I, I know I've emphasized this quite enough, but he clearly had an, uh, an eye for art. He had that artistic eye. Oh. And, and it was a stroke of genius with the um, secret teachings of all ages to, to present it in that way. But Lugosi is also interesting. I don't know if I dreamed this. It, it was like a dream I had or something. But uh, I'm sure that I've seen footage of Manny Hall hypnotizing Bella Lugosi in connection with some sort of film. Is Does that ring a bell? Does it? Uh, it does. It does. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> that, that should <laughs> be not, rich. It's not just me then. No, 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 no. It's not like some kind of dream I had. And then, uh, okay then. And, and he also officiated as, uh, uh, the person who married Bella Lugosi to his wife is that right? Yes, Hope. Uh, uh, I think it was Bella Lugosi's sixth wife. You know, <laughs> right. that's crazy. So, um, so and just and just uh, just to mention, Bella Lugosi is famous for playing the first screen. Well, actually, it's not the very first screen Dracula. It's the first talking screen Dracula from the thirties. Mm. Just just because, just to make that clarify that for some people, it's like the uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so the at one point, did, I'm sure I read in your book at one point he was living in the Ennis house as well. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> did you get to go there? Yeah. No. Oh. That, I, I would be a much older person if I had. <laughs> no, sure. no. Um, uh, but he, he would, he, he tells a story about the, it was falling apart, the poor <laughs> thing. Um, I, I I wonder how that that poor little house is doing. Yeah. I I hope they've restored it. I think they have. It, I mean, it's it's. I mean, for those who don't know, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright um, house. I'm a massive architecture nerd when it comes to Frank Lloyd Wright, but uh, and obviously, it's very famous for being. You know, the um, they, they took imprints of the wall, didn't they, and used it as the Deckard's apartment in Blade Runner. It's uh, mm-hmm. it was a house on which was the uh, house on house the on Haunted Hill. Yeah, yeah. Vincent yeah. Price. Yeah, yeah. Vincent Price from the. 50s was that was the 50s or 60s 50s or 60s i don't know yeah it's an early it's a very um sort of youthful looking vincent price who's yeah oh he was he was that 
at his best. He was at his peak right there. Yeah, absolutely. It's also an interest. I've always thought this about the film, that in The House on the Haunted Hill, it's like the archetypal haunted house. And you think, ah, I know exactly what they're going to, you know, what it's going to look like. <laughs> and they twist it. You know, it's a very futuristic. I mean, for the time, especially for the time. It's a very no, it's futuristic. really clever. Yeah, it's a very clever twist that, you know, that it's a very... Um, uh, artful, you know, way of doing it, and made it very mm-hmm. memorable, and and adds and is part of the mythos of, of the building. It's part, yeah, it's part of it, isn't it? Now, yes, and it's kind of um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I could imagine it being like a perfect place for kind of a, a spiritual leader to be based as well. In terms of you know, it just looks cool. <laughs> well, you know, setting is important. You know, if you're if you're going to have a séance, do it upright. You know, it's, there should be, it's it's all about the ambiance. You know, you can have a party and everybody can show up or you can make it an event, you know, and there's theatrics involved. Also, you know, that helps focus. Um, you're sitting under a bunch of fluorescent lights with Formica tables and vending machines going off in the background. It's not going to be a great seance, but, you know, Put some lights up, maybe tablecloth, something nice, maybe some incense. There, you might you might get something there, so, but you got to set the mood. Well, also, as well, he's is interesting. The building again, it it does um, it reaffirms again if it were needed, not that it wasn't needed. The the artist eye that many people many people clearly had, yeah. Yeah, definitely. A connoisseur. A connoisseur. Yeah. yeah. It's a very, very nice, refined taste. I mean, uh, his home was like that. Mm. It's a beautiful home. It was subdued. It was comfortable. Um, everywhere was art. Mm. Um, just walking from the living room into the dining room, two giant boo dogs, um, just massive. And, Gorgeous, stunning. Um, the the, the I, but see, here's the clever thing about that detail, that love of art. He was an incredibly enthusiastic stamp collector. Hmm. Yeah, my grandfather and was as well. Th- there you go. And there is a beauty to those stamps. There's an artistry to them. Um, and he would just be delighted about stamp collecting. Um, he could talk for hours about stamps hmm. um, and also great at jokes. He loved being able to tell jokes. <laughs> That's always good. So, you know, there, there's, you know, everybody wants to imagine um, that that very theatrical presence that he was he was sporting in the early years. Um, and it, it was absolutely the opposite. Hmm. His presence was very down to earth, very gentle very practical sensible healthy um always going for what's the healthy way to approach this what's the what's the way that will make you feel better and think better and feel stable that was the most important thing that was it was a not stoic really but but just this healthy approach to living is is how it all ended up Mm, now if we take him forward 
as a lecturer. If you'll notice in all these lectures, um, he will get specific about certain things of art and things like that, or even um, occult practices and stuff, but always an approach to living was, was his main theme, a healthy approach to living. How can we improve ourselves? Ergo, we improve our surroundings. We improve the, the city. We improve the world. Mm. The way that extends, once the, the person is, is balanced, how that can extend to society. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of, uh, of looking at it. We've mentioned the Philosophical Research Society, PRS, a few times. And I understand from your book that obviously the PRS that you experienced is probably quite different to the PRS that exists today. Um, mm -hmm. But could you talk a bit about the PRS in your sort of time you, that you were there? Because it seemed like quite a flourishing and kind of a, a decent community, at least, of, of people. Yeah, I'd describe it as a beehive. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, um, oh, well, of course, he was there. So every Sunday, there'd be 100, 200 people showing up to hear him lecture. Now, when these people got together to hear Mr. Hall, they also got together and started talking to each other. And it was amazing. Um, now it, it had the, um, well, it's Sunday service, but Sundays were never like this in my world. Um, this was just, a, a giant combination of different spiritual approaches, um, people with theories um, that would, you know, carry them through life as they experiment with these ideas. And most of them in very beautiful ways. Um, again, most people ended up being book collectors. Um, they found that uh, a particular um, philosophy was in, just spoke to them. And they would literally um, just converge on Sunday, listen to Mr. Hall, and then after the lecture, they would just start talking. And they, like I described, like bees telling other bees where the best flowers are. And it was literally like that. Um, the, the people who worked there, were all experts in their particular field, astrologers, philosophers, poets, um, it, it, mystics, of course, um, some occultists. Um, it, it was just a beautiful, beautiful um, melting pot of interesting ideas. And it was, it was just so open and available that e even you know scruffy street kids like us could come in there and end up working with mr hall um that was amazing and uh, quite unexpected and yet it was it was so available let's, let's talk a bit about that so how did you end up um you know meeting uh, mr hall and kind of uh, could you describe your first experience with the PRS and, you know, 
how how you ended up there and you know and then what happened after that because obviously as you said you ended up working there well ronnie decided that um he really wanted to volunteer so i I was like all right yeah i i wouldn't mind let's let's see what they have to offer and see if we can you know he was he was very enthusiastic about working there and so we went down there one day and went and saw Christine, I believe her name was, and um, she interviewed us. And the interview went well for me um, because I had skills as far as business machines, typing, filing, all these experiences, you know, at jobs I'd had before. And she, you know, looked over at Ronnie, what, do you know any languages? Just out of, you know, she was looking for something that Ronnie could do. And he went, well, yeah, I, I, I know several that were spoken in my house and I can, you know, with a dictionary, I can, I can figure most languages out. All right. Well, okay. Well, the next day we get a phone call and it's PRS calling saying, Hey, Tamara, we like those, those, those filing typing skills of yours a lot. Would you like to come down and work, you know, in the office, back office? And I was like, uh, maybe. And uh, anything for Ronnie? Oh, we're still looking around. Okay. Well, Ronnie was, the enthusiasm dropped because, you know, oh, great. You get to work at PRS and um, I'm going to be sitting here with cats and nothing to do. That's, that's real fun. And so I was like, yeah, well, you know what? I don't like doing typing and filing and business machines very much either. So eh, maybe, maybe not. And well, next day we get a phone call. It's PRS and Ronnie's like, uh, and I'm like eh, myself. And, but the phone calls for Ronnie and we were both kind of surprised and I hand the phone over. Um, we need you to come down and have an appointment with Mr. Hall. He'd like to speak to you. And we were both stunned. Okay. Get to meet the big fellow himself. Really? Um, so Ronnie and I went there and I got acquainted with some of the, um, workings of the office and Ronnie had a meeting with Mr. Hall. Now, poor Ronnie walks into the office and he's, he's, you know, it's Mr. Hall. And, um, the first thing, and there is a phalanx of women standing there and they all look pretty serious. And as Ronnie walks in, Mr. Hall greets him and says, sit down and make yourself miserable. So, Ronnie sits in the chair next to the desk and Mr. Hall starts asking him a few questions. Like, I hear you speak languages. Yeah. Well, I've had these languages growing up and um, he said, so can, can you read them? And I did, well, yeah, um, I might need a dictionary, but yeah, I can get through them. Um, Really? And then he slides over this giant stack of papers and he says, this is a galley. This is my alchemical bibliography. 
I'd like you to do the editing. Now, Ronnie was not at all comfortable with this. Um, he felt woefully um, unqualified. Uh, and so he took the galley and he started to walk out of the office. And at that point, as he walked out of the office, um, the vice president, Pat Irvin, um, she promptly grabbed the galley and said, no. And he went, thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm, I'm really not qualified. You're right. Um, yeah. And she grabbed the galley and walked away. And so um, Ronnie comes and we hook up again that afternoon and we're leaving. And I'm like, you got to meet him. And yes, you know, he's wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. He gave me a job I couldn't do. Oh, you know, well, we get home and it's, it's, it's sort of like, hey, we got to meet, he got to meet Mr. Hall. So that was great. Um, and then there's a phone call and it's Edith, Mr. Hall's secretary. And she says, Mr. Hall's office, 9 a.m. tomorrow. See you there. Bye. And we just, we didn't get it. <laughs> He was kind of stunned. I was kind of stunned. And I said, well, I guess I'm working another day in, in the filing cabinet. <laughs> so Ronnie went for his appointment. This time it was only Edith in the office, maybe Pearl. And uh, Mr. Hall had the galley on the corner of his desk again. And when Ronnie sat down to make himself miserable, Mr. Hall slid the uh, galley over and said, um, young man, I want you to edit the alchemical bibliography. You only answer to me. If someone tries to take it away from you, you tell me. And that was that. And Ronnie still tried to get out of it. He was like, well, uh, look, you know, I, I, I don't know about alchemy. I don't know about bibliographies. I, and I, I can only read these languages with dictionaries. And he said, that's fine. I'll guide you through it. And I'll check your work every step of the way. You'll be fine. Just go ahead. You get, you get to edit this. So <laughs> Ronnie went to collect me because he had gotten his walking papers and I was in the office and he said, okay, um, we're going home now, but we have to stop off and get uh, a German dictionary and a French dictionary, a Latin dictionary. Also, we're going to need some books on alchemy. And that's what started his job at the PRS and mine as well. So I stayed in the, I had fun being in the office. That was, that was you know, nice and quiet. And I could, you know, chat with everybody who came through there. Um, very nice place to be. And that that's where I learned so, so much um, about the different people and how they had come to PRS because everyone who, who worked there had started off as a volunteer who had heard him lecture, Mr. Hall lecture, and um, just really loved the whole feel of the place and what Mr. Hall had to offer. And 
you know, so some people had been working there 30 years, 20 years. Um, and they were amazing people, mm. really amazing people. And how, um, I was going to say, how did that particular project work out? And did it become um, something you felt, you, you, you know, did it work out basically? <laughs> and, and did you feel like, well, yeah, I can do this. It's, I've, I've done this job now, you know. It, it, how, how did it, because that's a changing, that's a, like a changing experience, isn't it? For Ronnie, it was, it was uh, bittersweet and it was kind of difficult because he felt that the original editor had um, done all the work and should have been credited. And um, he always felt a little squeamish about that, um, not too comfortable. And he was sort of like, Mr. Hall kind of put me in a bad place there. Yeah, because he kind of challenged it. He challenged Mr. Hall, didn't he? With uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he just didn't feel um, the ethics of it. Um, bothered him and you know Mr. Hall was like hey that guy that did that work he was a contracted worker um, he was being difficult um, I gave you the job you get the credit whether you want it or not and that's that remember Mr. Hall's the boss so it was kind of like that um, however it, it of course it was you know marvelous intellectually and 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 educationally for ronnie um yeah <laughs> uh, it's a nice job to have one thing i was particularly and he got to oh go on sorry he got to work with mr hall every day mm -hmm. um that's how um the relationship the working relationship developed into what it was what it became mm -hmm. which was more sort of a personal assistant kind of thing um, where Ronnie would would read letters, the correspondence that would come in. People wanted to meet Mr. Hall and things like that, and that and that's how I ended up being a screener. Hmm. Um, was Ronnie was doing a lot of that correspondence work, and but then there were also people who wanted a one-on-one -on -one, um, meeting with Mr. Hall, and and um, that sometimes. It wasn't really necessary. Plus, isn't all Mr. Hall was in his 80s. We didn't want to take up too much of his time. And, you know, certain situations was simply better done through correspondence. You know, if you could tell somebody, maybe you should try this instead of you don't need a meeting with me. You you actually need to, you know, read this book or try studying this philosophy. That seems like what, what you need or just the outright no. Um, <laughs> now, a lot of times what would happen is we'd be the buffer between the meeting. So um, Ron, I, I was in the office with Ronnie when Mr. Hall said, look, this, this person wants to meet me. I'd like for you to go and have a conversation with them, see what's going on there, see if it's it's worth a, a personal meeting, basically. And, you know, I'm standing there, I'm looking at the altar, you know, looking at the art and stuff like that. And he said, take her with you. And I, I'm like, turn around. He's like, tell me what you see. Oh, 
okay. <laughs> um, so we proceed to do that. And, you know, like, I think the first one was the, the time I said, um, you know, so Ronnie's going, ah, this person is, is pretty good. Maybe they benefit from a meeting with you, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he went, okay. And he looks at me, well, what did you see? And I was, I wouldn't let that guy feed my cat. You know, it's just, it's, I don't think so. And Mr. Hall, of course, thought that was funny. And um, it's like, okay, so I'll make up my mind from there. Um, and that's how it started. But after a while, I, I was the one that Mr. Hall always went, what did you see? Well, I saw this and that and this. Okay. Um, and that led all the way to Fritz. Mm, yeah, well, we'll come to Fritz a, a little bit later. One thing I, I was saying, that one thing um, I was quite jealous of, actually, when reading your book, was you. Uh, one of the ladies that worked at the PRS used to be a book dealer. Um, yeah, and, Edith. Yeah, and you got amazing access to some some quite juicy text by the sounds of things at a very very affordable price which these days is uh you know not impossible yeah basically <laughs> thanks a lot ebay <laughs> yes yeah. yeah so i mean one and one of the things you seem to have um sort of developed a bit of a interest in or maybe even a slight obsession with was uh fairies or fae um, yeah. You mentioned that in the book a lot. Could you uh, talk to that a little bit? Like it's something that Mark's particularly interested in. I know. And, oh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get Ken onto the uh, fairy side of it. The Fay train. He's trying to get That's me. Right. <laughs> the Fay train. Fae, might you actually go so far as to say uh, Ken is Fay curious? <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I don't know. I just. Um, I'd asked um, a lot of sources about that. Now, one source that I asked said, this is, these are nature spirits. You could call that. Um, it is, I think they are energetic forces. And um, probably something that we naturally saw back in the day before we got all our our mental development kicked in. Um, this is often what people say, you know, cats are looking at or, or the dog is, why is the dog staring at that corner? Well, it could be your aunt Tilly. Um, it could be a fairy. It could be a spirit of some kind um, or just simply an energy. Um, they have a sensitivity to things like that. And certain people do too. Um, You've all, everybody um, has experienced walking into that room and you get the creeps. There's an energetic force or a feeling that is in there. And, oh, you find out that family was killed in that room. Yeah, maybe that's the thing I'm feeling. Um, now, do, is that simply... Your mind actually knew that it was somewhere in your unconscious. You already knew that thing had happened there. And that's why you got the creepy feeling. Or do you actually feel an energetic force? Now that, that all, again, this is all comes back to nature spirits. Um, the belief that 
rocks and even inanimate objects have a spirit, have a energetic component to them. Yeah. I mean, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, like in theosophy, obviously, many people was involved, you know, had antecedents and that was very much, you know, part of that sort of... Uh, that chain that sort of philosophical perspective is you know that they, they they the sort of their view sort of uh, of the fey elementals as they would call them mm -hmm. as, you know they they base very a lot on the uh, ideas of paracelsus and paracelsus as, as an alchemist he, he traveled all over europe and he gathered up all bits and bobs of lore information and the the the, the famous um sort of classical definitions of undines and um salamanders and sylphs mm -hmm. and gnomes all all originate with paracelsius's work and um and before that the sort of the ancient greek philosophers divided the universe up into the four elements uh, which which you know like, as jung points out i mean the, if you look at jung and his idea of archetypes they're, they're very much part of his his Although we don't perhaps take them literally, or maybe we could in some ways, but um, it's an idea which is filtered down into psychology and into art and to well, every every area of life, and still and it's still with us in, in lots of ways. And uh, I suppose there's also the sort of um, you know the early expressions of, of um, reverence is of of religion <laughs> religious reverence is is of the mm -hmm. genus loci the spirits of the you know the pools and the fields and the woods and so on you know there's a, there's more than there's more to them than meets the eye there's more to nature than it, how it just presents to the, the physical the physical aspect young is so wonderful for this uh, yeah. uh, but i mean th there's the situation now we're doing the hymns of Orpheus. We are doing the hymn to Athena. We are in the flats of West Hollywood. A great horned owl lights on a telephone pole directly across from our window. It's there for the whole hymn. And as we finish the hymn, this bird swoops up as if it's going to come through our window and flies off. Now, did we beckon the spirit of the owl, which is the spirit of Athene, and um, caused this event? Um, was simply the energy of those hymns that are so ancient enough to, again, call the energy of the owl? Um, who knows? But Certainly, we did a hymn for Athena, and we got a great horned owl in the flats of West Hollywood on a weekday. What? Well, however, you, yeah, exactly. It's a significant experience, and it's it's funny mm -hmm. you mentioned Jung. I mean, Jung, uh, what gave him the kernel of the idea is was he was uh, talking to uh, one of his um, patients about uh, their dreams, and they and they were describing um the uh the scarab beetle from from egypt mm -hmm. and as they were talking there's a tapping at the window and when <laughs> young turned around it, it turned out to be there was a huge beetle sort of trying to get into the you know knocking itself against the the glass which was the you know the closest you could get to a scarab beetle probably in the same sort of uh you know 
um, phylum as as the scarab, the classical scarab from ancient Egypt. And that, for what it's worth, that gave him the idea of uh, the kernel of the idea of what he called synchronicities. And you know, mm-hmm. are they coincidences or are they coincidences? And and, and <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And it's a fascinating study. And look, um, when you go through that, when you consider the Jungian perspective, um, look at the amount of learning that you get from that. The the understanding of self and the understanding of the external world as it relates to the self. it's, It's an amazing study. That's a lifetime of, of, of interest. And I think that's one of the things that Mr. Hall suggested throughout his career was, you know, take these insights and use them to your advantage so that not only um, you become a better person, it enriches the world around you is a, is a much more um, I don't want to use the word loving, but um, accepting thing instead of a great out there that's almost at odds with your existence. Now you're in harmony with the external world instead of at odds. And it makes for a better life and such an enriching life. And think, think of how many people you encourage with these kind of insights that you have about yourself or, or how the self is in, um, affected by the externals, you could help so many other people with that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. So we mentioned, well, you mentioned uh, a character called Fritz earlier. And I think we should uh, probably just, I mean, it's, it's on the cover of the book, but you knew Mr. Hall for about seven years. Um, I'm assuming mm-hmm. these are the final seven years of his life. Um, so could you talk about maybe, you know, the last, you know, his kind of passing and, um, uh, you know, his final years, I suppose, and, and, and yeah, and how Fritz comes into play? Well, let's see. Um, he lived, I believe, till 1990. And I think we left in 87. So he lived a few more years. Um, when I, I was I should doing, ask actually, sorry, why did you why did you leave the PRS? That's that's probably something we should uh, we should uh, bring in quickly before it was Fritz's fault. Mm. Okay, so that, yeah, okay, so that's uh, let's talk about Fritz and um, and why you left. Then I think that's probably a better way of coming into this because um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's let's do that. Sorry. <laughs> so, as screeners, we were told to go see this um, kind of um, new age guru type man with a very large following. He wanted to have a um, uh, an in person with Mr. Hall. So we went to see him lecture, this man lecture. Um, And right away, I was very disturbed by the um, conformity and um, almost robotic behavior of the people involved. 
Um, they all dressed the same. They all had the same haircut, male and female. Um, it just came across a little odd. And, and when we got to this lecture, it was in a Quonset hut um, out, out in a uh, um, field, open field. Um, but a lot of nice cars in the parking lot. Um, so we were listening to his lecture and well, at the very beginning of the lecture, um, there was this little scrub jay that popped in and he popped in and squawked and then flew out. Well, the devotees that were there to hear the lecture all acted as if um, this bird had been drawn in by the, the great purity of this guru. And I was just, I know scrub jays. I, I grew up here. That, that bird was looking for a treat. He was used to getting his treat at a certain time. He popped in, didn't get his treat, squawked, took off. Um, but you know, you couldn't tell that to the followers at all. And I, I didn't dare. Um, so anyway, the lecture went on. He was, um, it was through an interpreter and he was, he was nagging everybody about their, their sex lives, um, like a, a mother of teenagers, really, literally. And it was sort of like, jeez, I, I, I'm not feeling this guy very much. It's, it's, eh. So Ronnie, Ronnie and I, and our friend, we all got up to leave. And one of the, the um, people that was trying to wrangle us as, as representatives of PRS was like, where are you going? It was like, oh, we're leaving. Um, uh, she was having none of it. The conversation ended with, uh, maybe we'll come back, okay? And she was just aghast at our oafishness and said, well, I hope so for your sake. And we ran out of there like we were on fire. It was just, let's get out. Well, we came back and told Mr. Hall. Well, Ronnie was sort of forgiving. He was like, well... He didn't give that great a lecture, and um, but there were a lot of nice cars in the parking lot. He, I think he's got a very high-end clientele, and you know, it's it's not like PRS where everybody's just sort of like normal. Um, but you know, maybe that would be good. Maybe um, maybe they'd like your particular style. Maybe we could get some of the crowd to come in, and that would be nice for PRS, and 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 it, they'd probably benefit from it. I just shook my head the whole time. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't like this guy. And I, I just frankly said to Mr. Hall, um, it's like a cult. Their, con their conformity is, it makes your skin crawl. Um, they're like robots. Um, I don't like the guy. I, I, I didn't like what he was saying at all. And I was like, okay, okay. Well, then we get another, we want you to screen somebody. Apparently somebody from his, his group wanted to, you know, break away and, and wanted to volunteer at PRS. Well, we went into the library. It was a stormy day. <laughs> Here we go again. And um, there was this guy sitting at the table and um, he was under a spotlight. Of course, he had 
I, I think it was Transcendental Magic and um, one of Mr. Hall's books and his little notepad. He was just, he was the perfect student. And I was just, uh, uh, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right at all. And I, I basically summarized it as a bit of a performance. Um, so Ronnie and, and he had very um, pointed yet banal conversation. And um, at the end, uh, Ronnie was like, okay, well, it was very nice to meet you, shook his hand. I held my hand out to shake his hand and he, he looked at me like I was handing him something dead. And um, I guess he didn't like girls that much. And, um, you know, I felt like I shook the hand of a ring wraith, okay? And we walked out and I, I just, Ronnie and I were both just, this guy is not, he's not what he's saying he is. And there, there's definitely something wrong here. So again, we told Mr. Hall, uh-uh, not, this isn't good. And um, then we saw him a little while later in the library and he's, he's talking to Edith, Mr. Hall's secretary. And we're like, okay. And asked Edith, what's, what's up with that? And, oh, he's, he's really good friends with Mr. Hall and Marie now. And, you know, he's, he's a really nice dude. And, Okay. I think we, we had another meeting where I said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's very dry out here in LA. And um, I, I, he actually went away and he, he started a um, birthing center in Hawaii. And um we thought that that was the end of it. Well, he showed up again. And this time I just, I said, I want to talk to Mr. Hall. I think that was the first time I ever went. I need to talk to Mr. Hall. And well, when I went in there, I, I lost it. I, I really started arguing and, and, demanding that Mr. Hall not have anything to do with this man. Now, I, I had never been like that. I'd always taken a very calm, balanced, I might, I might have gotten a little wry here or there or arch, but never. Now, look, damn it, I know what I'm talking about, but I did that day. I, I was just, I went through the seven stages of death and I, I, cried i i said you know we'll leave whatever it takes but don't have anything to do with this guy and um i finally blurted out this guy is gonna kill you and that was it mr hall held up his hand in his typical fashion which means stop and i stopped i was still crying but i stopped talking Edith was standing in the doorway looking at me like I had lost my mind. 
And Ronnie was just like beside himself. He didn't know what to do. And that, that was it. That was the last time I saw Mr. Hall. Um, I couldn't verify why. I had no proof of Fritz being a bad guy. Um, actually, it wasn't the last time I saw Mr. Hall. Um, we actually did um, a welfare check, as it were. We'd always been told we could go over there anytime we wanted to, to their house. Never, never did that. We thought that was, you know, a bit much. But we did this one time and Fritz was there. And um, he was blocking the door and saying, no, you can't see them. No, no. And well, Marie heard Ronnie's voice and said, that's Ronnie, let him in. I want to see him, Fritz. Uh, this guy looked like he'd just eaten a beetle, um, but he had to let us in. And we had a nice talk and everything seemed okay. Mr. Hall seemed alert and rosy and everything's good. And, you know, of course, Marie was like, oh, Fritz gets my work. He's going to give me a computer and teach me how to use it. And he's got assistance for me. <clears throat> Everything Marie could want. And I remember, you know, when he let us out, um, we went to walk to our car and I turned around and looked. And I saw him in the, the big picture window at the front of the living room where the living room was. And he really did look like Norman Bates. I was like, I said to Ronnie, I, they look okay, but I, I that guy, he's a bad guy. Um, so that, that's sort of the, the way the Fritz saga went with me. So basically I, I wrecked the relationship because I didn't like this guy so much. And I really didn't want Mr. Hall to be around him. So um, we stopped going to PRS and um, well, one day Ronnie came in with a newspaper and he said, this is a few years later, um, Mr. Hall. And I went, is he dead? And he went, yeah. And I said, I was, you know, I was doing something else. And I said, was it Fritz? And he went, yeah. And, and um, so that, that was kind of a, that'll, that'll set you up back on your heels. So the story was basically Fritz did the typical senior abuse story. The, the thing that most people do with people who are famous and somewhat wealthy. Um, and which is he came in as a caregiver. And of course he started isolating him. Um, I'm sure much in the tradition of warm tongue started telling um, Mr. Hall that this person is working against you. This person is trying to have you committed and this person is doing that. Um, all the while getting Mr. Hall away from the office, in his house, no visitors. And then deciding that 
going on a road trip at 88, 89 years old in ill health was a great idea. We'll put him in an RV and Marie can go to lectures. And once he got him separated from Marie, that was the night he died. Mm. And um, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit fishy, isn't it? <laughs> and just a week after he had um, signed over all his worldly possessions to ah, Fritz. And Fritz was a generous guy. He was going to let Marie live in a little room in her own home now that it was going to be his. So you tell me. Even I think even the judge in the case said, this is so egregious. This is so obvious. Um, fortunately, Fritz died before he could enjoy the benefits of all his ill-gotten gains. Hmm. Right. There's a what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? There's an element of karma there, right, by the sounds of things. Yeah, <laughs> it's a tragic thing. I mean, it's such a tragic uh, ending, and uh, you know, it's. Uh... But is it? It. You know, my question. I questioned this in the book. Um, Maybe Mr. Hall knew. Maybe he found out when he was too weak physically and mentally to do anything about it and knew that this, he, he referenced Mr. Um, he referenced Fritz as the Lord High Executioner. Um, um, yeah. Uh, so maybe there was some sort of, I know this guy's going to do me in. Tanya was right. Um, so. Yeah. And there's, a, I, there's a vindication in the fact that, you know, that, that it's not, I mean, it's not just you. I mean, you had the, the sort of instinctive um, concerns, um, but also it's a, a, in the final, you know, later, it, it was, it's not just you who, who's, who, who's um, convinced that of the, some uh, shenanigans, to say the least, uh, taking mm. place here. That was shared. There was a, there was a general concern shared. And, um, you know, and uh, you know, it, it's a tragic, it's tragic in the sense that you've got, you, I mean, you've got the grim satisfaction of saying, I told you so, but that's not grim satisfaction <laughs> anyone wants, is it? It's not. Nobody no, wants that. No, yeah, exactly. that's Cassandra. I told you, yeah. <laughs> you know. And that, and you were saying earlier that you consider that as the title of your, of the book, of your account, of your narrative, Cassandra, who's, mm -hmm. who just, just to qualify that is, is, you know, part of Cassandra's curse is that she, she's not her, she foretells misfortunes, but she's also not listened to. She's not, she's not uh, taken seriously. That's because she didn't keep her deal with Apollo. Mm, you know, the warning, uh, the warning isn't, isn't heard. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's a sad thing, but I mean, uh, his legacy at least seems to be intact somewhat. You know, in in terms absolutely, of, the work stands on its own. Yeah, and um, I, I think maybe the thing, uh, a good way to maybe even you know <clears throat> bring out this interview as well is perhaps you could sort of if someone is a, a seeker, as it were, interested in the works, where would you where would you send them in terms of books and contacts and this kind of thing? I think the best is. Um, uh, actually hearing his lectures that's that's where it's the most direct um you get to hear his beautiful voice um because he had a beautiful voice um 
the, the combination of W.C. Fields and, and Lionel Barrymore um, and FDR. And actually, yeah, I, I, I actually would say um, that will give you insight. Now, whatever your particular flavor is that you enjoy, if you want to study occultism, if you want to study mysticism, if you want to study Buddhism, um, or simple philosophy, um, he has written on all these subjects, if not books, pamphlets. Um, so I would say find what appeals in whatever he discusses in a lecture and go from there. I think that's what so many people did. So many of those marvelous little honeybees that ended up going there for years. Um, that's, that's how they started. And I was very struck actually, right at the beginning of your, your narrative when you were saying, um, you know, your involvement with uh, Manny P. Hall, it, 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 it was a life-changing thing and you could never really be the same person afterwards. And that's a huge, you know, you're, you're a living link to Manny P. Hall and, uh, and his work continues and, and hopefully your, his work continues through, through your book work as well, actually. And if, and if that's not making the ordinary extraordinary, I'm, I don't know what it is. Truly. <laughs> and so um if people want to actually first of all what are you what's what what's what's next i mean you've written this this great book and i'm assuming there's some more music in the work as well um do you, uh, any more books as well oh yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah um quite surprised for me um people want to know what happened afterwards now i i do a very quick okay that that that's the music thing but writing about music is, is definitely up on the uh, drawing board. Um, Ronnie has written a book that's going to come out, I believe, next year. Uh, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. And um, then we have The Hymns of Orpheus. We reworked The Hymns of Orpheus. A lot more research and and really great studies that have been done recently. So that that that's a lot of fun. Um, and numerous others actually. <laughs> um, we had a lot of writing that was done during the musical portion of our lives, and um, but it was not. There was no outlet for that and it didn't seem appropriate and like i said so many new studies so much scholarly work has been done on all the different subjects that we're interested in that it was just like all of a sudden it was ah it was a buffet of just brilliance um and and beautiful scholarly work that well it was just so much fun to dive into and then to to assess certain themes that we like to write about. And will Ronnie's book be coming out on Inner Traditions? Or yes, it will. Oh, brilliant! We'll have to have Ronnie on the show. Um, when, when oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Excellent. Oh, well, um, if people want to find you uh, online, where's the best place to look? Oh, the usual suspects: Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter. Um, the yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, it's been you know it's an it's an interesting story, and I really do recommend people check out the book because it's a it's a it's I found it it was, it was a fun book to read as well. You know, which like I was saying to you before the interview is uh, it's quite rare in this in this field. You know, it's the, these books are usually very densely packed, and expect expect the reader to have a you know, a, a vast knowledge of certain things and, you know, it's, it can get a bit tiring actually. So to have a book come along that's like entertaining and, um, but also informative, it, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a breath of fresh air actually. Oh, thank you so much. Excellent. It's been so much fun talking to both of you. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. And we are back. That was a very rock and roll episode in many ways, wasn't it? We had a hey, we got a reference to whiskey a go go. Yeah, there so, you go. Yeah, yeah. More, yeah. more more good, you know. Asphalt. Isn't whiskey a go go where River Phoenix died? I believe. Yeah, that's outside. right. Yeah, so I think Johnny Depp was mentioned in passing. Yeah, he was. And, yeah, uh, yes, and he, he has a he, he owns that or did own that, and uh, I do believe that those events took place there. Yeah. What an interesting story, though. I, I thought she was, um, you know, she presented a really good story there, just like the book, actually. The book is very good. I'll, I'll remind the listeners of the title. It's uh, Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, My Seven Years in Occult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall. It's actually a really interesting read and um, very much like the uh, the interviewee. Um, you know, it, it's very kind of comprehensive, but at the same time, very approachable. Um, but what and, were your thoughts on... And a living link, and mm. then a living link in um, in the story of Manly B. Hall. I mean, it, I mean, he's influenced lots of different people and, you know, his work has sort of, you know, touched lots of people's lives in all sorts of different ways. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, this, uh, the lady in question is... Uh, a part of that chain, that cha- chain of initiates, if you put it in that formal sense. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of her, uh, you know, her story? It was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah, the, the, absolutely. And, and, and there's an authenticity to her account, isn't there? And um, uh, a passion to it, as you, as you mentioned yourself. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think if you want, you know, because I, I, as I say in the interview, I came into this with a, a fairly... You know, I was a bit of a noob when it came to Manly P. Hall, Palmer Hall, rather, sorry. Um, and as part of my research, I did go on, if you if you search for him on YouTube, you will find there are, there's a comprehensive amount of uh, his lectures available on, online, which is great if you're, you know, interested in, in you know, following up on his work or, because some of it is really interesting. He, he, like Mark said, he was a real character and a real... Um, you know, an influential figure in a way, wasn't he? He was uh... absolutely, yeah. He was absolutely, you know, a great popularizer in the sense that he sort of introduced people to lots of esoteric concepts, metaphysics, and so on, and uh, wrote quite a lot on Freemasonry, which we didn't mention. But uh, anyways, uh, that's just, all. We just did know. a whole show on that. We don't need to do that again. Well, <laughs> it, it pops up. It's uh, part of our, uh, you know, part of our, you know, oeuvre. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so as I said earlier, do link up with us on social media, uh, at Sitting Now um, on most platforms, and then full name, right where you're sitting now on Facebook. Uh, we always like to hear from people. 
give us suggestions tell us you hate us we don't really mind just contact us in some form we do we do enjoy interaction um and we will be back next week um and we're not sure who with yet <laughs> but we'll see you there